Now today, friends, we begin in the 12th chapter. And I'd like, as usual, to tie it back in to the last study that we had. You'll recall that we said that when the law, the book of the law, was found in the temple and it was read to the people that it had such a profound effect on this man Josiah, he called the people in and had them make a covenant that they would keep that law. And that law, by the way, is found beginning in the 21st chapter of Exodus and the 22nd and the 23rd chapter, and actually all the way through to the giving of the instructions for building the tabernacle in chapter 25. And what we have here is a man's relationship to his neighbor, his relationship to the person of others and also the property of others, and how he should conduct himself as God's man. And they took an oath that they would keep it. But the thing that happened was that this revival was largely a surface revival, but it's no question but what the words of Jeremiah had its effect. And there were many that had in genuine sincerity turned to the Lord. And we again would lift out verse 6 of chapter 11, Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant, and do them. Now, what happened was the people promised, of course, that they would do this. But the fact of the matter is that it wasn't long that deterioration set in after the revival why things began to wear off, that is, the spiritual, and the people began to return to their old ways. And even Josiah made a very grave blunder. He went out against the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, Necho, and they fought at Megiddo. And at the battle of Megiddo, why, Josiah was fatally wounded, and he died And Jeremiah, we're told, mourned at this. Over in 2 Chronicles, the 35th chapter, at verse 25, I read just this. And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah. This man, Jeremiah and Josiah, obviously both young men. And this man, Josiah, died as a young man. Jeremiah wept bitterly because he knew what was going to happen, that the people would not only return back to idolatry, but they would sink farther down in immorality, which, of course, they did. And he gives them a message that, of course, they didn't want to hear. But now, we saw last time here in the last part of chapter 11, he had to leave his hometown of Anathoth. Josiah would have protected him had he been alive, but now Josiah's gone. And what has happened, Jehoahaz comes to the throne. He actually was an uncle. His mother's name was Hamutal, and he only reigned for three months. But that period, he's given over to total iniquity and evil doing. And then after him, why, Jehoiakim, 
and Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, was made king of Judah by Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt. And in return for this appointment, Jehoiakim, he taxed the land and he paid tribute to Egypt. And it wouldn't be long until Nebuchadnezzar would defeat the Egyptian king and Jehoiakim then became the vassal of Babylon for three years after which he rebelled against the king, and that was against the warning of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah also warned against an alliance with Egypt as a false confidence. And the very sad thing was that Jehoiakim would, of course, pay no attention to him, and he became even more corrupt than any before him. So that we're entering now into a very evil period in the life of the nation, and the only light now left is this man Jeremiah. And added to that, after Jeremiah was forced to leave his hometown, and this young king Josiah is slain, and these evil men come to the throne, and conditions get worse. He has what I believe every honest Christian has, doubts come into his mind and in his heart. There'll be those dark thoughts that are going to come to you, and you're going to wonder about why God permits certain things. I have a notion that every preacher who stood for the things of God wonders at times why God does not move. There are those moments of doubt. And every pastor, he looks around and sees how his people are suffering. And it's his best people. It's the more spiritual folk. They seem to be having more trouble. I was riding with a lawyer and his wife up in Oakland, California the other day. And she brought out that. And she, by the way, has a radio program for children that goes out over this country today. And she raised the question. She says, it just seems in our church that it's the godly people that are having the trouble today. Why does God permit that? That's a question that comes to every one of God's children, I think. David, you remember, raised that question. He saw the wicked spreading themselves like a green bay tree. Listen to this man, Jeremiah, now. Chapter 12, verse 1. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. Yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them, yea, they've taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins, that is, from their how. Oh, they talk about you, Lord, but they're far from you, and they prosper. Why do you permit that? That was his question. By the way, you want to know something? That's my question. I'd like to ask God that today. Lord, why do you permit it? And I don't have the answer. I don't think that Jeremiah got the answer either. I don't think David ever got the answer. Oh, he got an answer, but that question wasn't answered. God permits the wicked. They prosper. They're the rich today. And you see them prospering. And they are spreading themselves right now like a green bay tree. Why does God permit that? 
And another friend of mine, he and I are both in radio, and we were talking about why doesn't God make some of the Christians wealthy who really want to support our radio program and help us to expand? Why doesn't God do that? That's a question. I've asked him that. And I have to say I don't have the answer. I'll read, though, what Jeremiah says here. Verse 2, Thou hast planted them. They've taken root. Now listen, verse 3, But thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Jeremiah says, Why don't you judge them? They're the ones to be judged. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither for the wickedness of them that dwell therein? The beasts are consumed, the birds, because they said he shall not see our last stand. And now this is his question. Lord, why do you permit it? And the answer that he gets is this answer. And it's the answer that I accept today. And you may not accept it, but this is the best we have. God says, I know what I'm doing. You trust me. You rest in me. And as he began this passage, righteous art thou, O Lord. My friend, whatever God's doing today, and some of the things just look very peculiar to me, it's right. He's going to be able to show you that someday. And that's where faith comes in. We walk by faith and not by sight. And now God says this to Jeremiah. He almost rebukes this young man now. And you can see the position of the young man. Josiah was his friend, the king. And Josiah's heart was moved. And these two young men, I think, were used to God to bring in a great revival. I've often wondered if God won't raise up a young man in this country who won't listen to anyone down here. He won't try to curry the favor of Washington or of the educational institutions or of even the so-called Christian public. He's just going to stand up and preach the Word of God and go into demand righteousness. And do you know, I think that God could do that in our day, and if he did, that would save this country. And that's the only thing that's going to save this country will be that sort of thing. Well, now, Jeremiah, he's left alone, and things are getting worse. Jehoahaz, now Jehoiakim is on the throne. They're corrupt rulers. Things are getting worse. What's going to happen? This is the thing that he had even said back in chapter 11, verse 16. The Lord called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. And Paul, you remember, quotes that over in Romans. Paul says that the good olive tree, it's been cut off and set aside. And that's exactly what God did to these people. And now today, God is out of that root. He's bringing forth a wild olive tree. That's you and that is I. We are the church today that's grafted into the root, and that root is Christ. He's the root out of a dry ground, and he brings life. And that's the thing. And God goes on to say here, I'll take care of this. I'll be the one that will deal with this. And the question of this man is, how long shall a land mourn? Lord, why don't you move? Now, this is interesting what God says to him. Verse 5, 
If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein thou trustest they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? The whole thing is just simply this. He says, Jeremiah, if you are troubled now by what things are going to happen, and you'll forgive me, I'm not trying to be irreverent, but God is saying actually this to him. He says, you ain't seen nothing yet, Jeremiah. It's going to get lots worse. Now, if this has troubled you, what are you going to do when it really gets bad? And I think, friends, it's really going to get bad today, and we may not have the answer. But I hope it'll draw you close to God, because he does have the answer, and that's the important thing. Now, God says here very candidly, verse 9, "...mine heritage is unto me as a speckled bird. The birds round about are against her." Come ye assemble, all the beasts of the field come to devour. Now, he says here, Jeremiah, you're a speckled bird. You see, every crow thinks her, you know, little offspring is blacker than any other crow. But here an egg hatches out in speckle. Well, that sort of tells you something, doesn't it? And that's the way this boy Jeremiah was. They said, we thought you were for us, one of us, and you're not. You're speckled. And that's what I am. I'm a speckled bird, too. I have a notion some of you folks are speckled birds. You're standing for God. You're a speckled bird today. And that's what God is saying to Jeremiah. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. He says, you just well make up your mind, Jeremiah. You're a speckled bird if you stand with me. Now, he goes on to say, though, that there is a day coming. Verse 15, it shall come to pass. After that I have plucked them out, I will return and have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. Why is it that the rich are prospering? God says, Jeremiah, I'll take care of that. What's going to happen? They're going into captivity, but I have remembered the land, and I'm going to bring them back into the land. What a message this was. Now, in chapter 13, here's another great chapter, and I think it's one of the most interesting. And again, even with things as serious as they have become, you can't help but smile. You know what it is? It is here, the parable of the girdle. Now, that, my friend, is something. Here's the parable of the girdle. Let me read verse 1 of chapter 13. Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. Now, that is something. And you can't help but smile at this. I don't know whether Jeremiah was putting on weight or not. I think he was losing weight. But God says to him, now you get a girdle, and you wear a girdle. And it wasn't because he's getting fat, because the girdle wasn't worn for that purpose in that day. And I'd be very... Frank, with your girdle is used today to try to maintain an hourglass figure where it's more like a barrel and not an hourglass. But nevertheless, in that day, a girdle was something that you wore to hold up the garments that you have in order that you might work. And that's the reason the Lord Jesus says their lawns girded about, that is, ready for service. And the girdle is a sign of service. And you remember that He girded himself with a linen cloth and began to wash the disciples' feet. 
And it has a twofold meaning. He, the great servant, is preparing them for service by washing their feet so they can have fellowship with him. And if you don't have fellowship with him, you can't serve because service is fellowship with Christ. It's not teaching a Sunday school class or singing a solo or preaching a sermon. It's fellowship with Christ, doing what he wants to do and being cleansed. God doesn't use dirty cups or dirty vessels. Now, we find here that he's told to do something quite interesting with this girdle. The Lord came unto me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, rise, go to Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. There's always been some question of whether Jeremiah actually went down and hid the girdle. I think he did. There was traffic in that day and going to and fro between nations. And I think he traveled down there and made this trip, did this very unusual thing. Came back and told people, said, where you been, Jeremiah? Says, been down to Babylon. Says, what have you been doing down there? You've been down there as a representative of the king? He said, no, I had nothing to do with that. They said, well, uh, did you go down there on a business trip? Said, no. Well, they said, why'd you go down there? He said, I went down there to hide a girdle. Now, friends, I think the crowd would laugh at that. Now, what does it mean? Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, After this manner I will mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. He was told to wear that girdle and it'd get dirt. Don't wash it. Just let it get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And finally gets so dirty, I don't think he could wear the thing any longer. Now God says, take it down to Babylon. Now, what does it all mean? It all means just one thing. God says, these people, because they're continually sinking into iniquity, they'll reach the place where there's no hope for them, and then I'm going to send them down into Babylonian captivity. Pretty impressive here. <laughs> and may I say to you, God uses some very funny things. This is a girdle we're talking about. Verse 16 of chapter 13, "...give glory to the Lord your God before he caused darkness, and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains, and while you look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness." What God is saying to these people is getting nighttime now, and it's going to be dark and you won't know where to go because you're lost in the mountains. And... He makes it very clear what he's going to do. Verse 19, Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Now, what is going to happen? Verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. And today it's impossible for an unsaved person to do good. All of these do-gooders today are not pleasing God. Until you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus for his glory and honor, you are doing it for yourself for a very selfish reason. And the psychologist can take you apart and show how selfish you really are when you're doing it like that. Now, friends, we come here to the 14th chapter of Jeremiah, now, we are in a section from Jeremiah 14 through 17, and he gave this message here, obviously, during the reign of Jehoiakim. As we saw, Josiah the king 
During the last part of his reign, he ran ahead of the Lord, and he fought against Necho, a pharaoh of Egypt, at Megiddo. And there at the battle of Armageddon, why this man fell, Josiah died. And Jeremiah mourned. He was his friend. And then the nation began to drop back into idolatry, and the plunge downward was terrible, and we'll see it here in this section. The first thing that happened was a drought. Now, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. And it was a pretty big one, you see. And it had happened way back in the reign of Ahab. You remember Elijah's the one at that time was God's messenger. Well, now here again, and Jeremiah is the messenger for the southern kingdom. God sent a drought upon the people. And that was the thing that was a judgment from God. And the very fact that you see the barrenness of the earth and you see the ground is cracked. He mentions that, because the ground is chapped, for there was no rain in the earth. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. That's verse 4 of chapter 14. And even the cattle did not calve. And when they did, why, they would run off and leave their offspring, because there was no water to drink. And it would mean the death of the calf and the cow also. What a day it was. Now, all of that revealed the fact that God was judging them. This is one of 13 famines in Scripture, and all of them are a judgment of God upon the land. And it was to show the people, as that land was barren and dry, these people had rejected the water of life, the Word of God, and that was the thing that was happening spiritual to the nation. Now, this man, Jeremiah, at this particular time, he went in to the Lord, and he cried out to him, verse 7, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake. For our backslidings are many we have sinned against thee. Now, Jeremiah takes his place with his people, as being one of the sinners. No boasting here. It's so easy today for many of God's saints to be critical of other saints, and they almost pray like the Pharisee. I thank you, Lord, that I'm so good. I do this and I do that, and I'm really a separated Christian, and I love you, and I'm just the nicest, sweetest little Sunday school boy or girl that you've ever seen. But old mean Mr. So-and-so over there, he's a dirty old man. And so-and-so, he never does anything for thee. And Miss So-and-so, she's a gossip and all that sort of thing. Now, Jeremiah didn't pray like that. Jeremiah identified himself with God's people, and he said, we're backslidden, and we have sinned. My friend, when you can take your place with God's people and go to God and talk like that, then you're able to go out and say something to God's people about the judgment of God. But until you can do that, I think that we ought to be very quiet about things. So we find this man, Jeremiah, now taking his place. Now, as we move on through this, we find that the darkness is gathering. 
and the people are stumbling on the dark mountains now. Verse 13, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. The false prophets were predicting peace and prosperity, and everything's going to be wonderful. And it wasn't. Their lives were such that God must judge them. Verse 14, Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. They're just patting you on the back. You see, Jeremiah's a young prophet. Now he's very much alone with Josiah dead. And so he's wondering, is he giving the correct message or are the false prophets? This time, he's not quite sure. He's sure of one thing, that he's given God's Word, but he's not sure of himself. That's the picture of this man. And he goes to God about it. And the Lord says, I want you to know the false prophets are lying. I didn't send them. You're giving my message. Now you can see that'll put that man right back on the firing line again. Now he says in verse 17, Therefore thou shalt say this word unto them, Let mine eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach, with a very grievous blow. Now, this message was breaking his heart. Jeremiah was weeping as he gave this message concerning his people. But God wanted the people to understand that that's the way he felt, that Jeremiah was his man, not only giving his message, but expressing his feeling. And I'm of the opinion that today we need to recognize that all of us are witnesses. And if you're a child of God, you're a witness, and you're saying something by your life. And we need to be very careful that when we speak the Word of God, that somehow or another our lives conform to it, that we're not giving it in a cold-hearted manner, that there must be feeling in it. And if there's not, something's wrong, radically wrong. Now, this man Jeremiah, broken-hearted, wants to go to God and pray for his people. That's very pious and very fine. And you know God says to him here something that's quite wonderful. He says to him, chapter 15 now, verse 1, Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people, cast them out of my sight, and let them go forth. Now we are moving over the borderline where there is absolutely no help or hope for the people. They have gone now too far, and judgment is coming upon them. And he says, why, Jeremiah, don't you worry because I'm not hearing your prayer, and I'm not saving the people. Why, he says, if Moses stood before me. And you remember, Moses was a marvelous intercessor. God said he would destroy the people and would fulfill his promise through Moses. Moses went in prayer before God, and God helped back the judgment and did not destroy the people, and he brought them into the land. 
And now if Moses was present, God says, it wouldn't do a bit of good now. And if Samuel, and Samuel could pray, you remember, for the people. And again and again, judgment was averted because of Samuel. But now, even if Samuel was present, God says, I wouldn't hear him. These people now have stepped over a borderline. Now, you can understand this man giving a message now of nothing in the world but judgment. And I'm just going to lift out one verse here at verse 5. For who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem? Or who shall bemoan thee? Or who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord. Thou art gone backward. And that's backsliding. Therefore will I stretch out my hand against thee and destroy thee. I'm weary with repenting. I'm tired of you coming and saying you're going to do better. And you weep, but you go right back and continue the same sins. God says, now the time has come, and I intend to judge you. Well, that doesn't make Jeremiah popular. Now, Josiah was his friend, but not Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, an evil man. He doesn't like this man, Jeremiah, at all. He's a fly in the ointment. He's causing trouble. Now, will you listen to Jeremiah? This man, in spite of the fact that he's a weeping prophet, and he gives this very difficult message to give, he really had a sense of humor. He, he went to the Lord, and he cried out in verse 10. Listen to this. He says, "'Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth.'" Why, he says, "'Nobody likes me.'" And I gargle with Listerine, and they still don't like me because my words are terrible to them, and they don't care for them. Now, listen to what he says. I have neither lent on usury, nor men have lent to me on usury. Yet every one of them doth curse me. And that's a very interesting thing. Jeremiah says, I don't lend money to anybody, and I don't borrow money from anybody. And friends, that's the one way you can lose friends. A man, he's a Christian man. He told me about how a man came to him, was a professing Christian, wanted him to let him have some money. And I think the man was foolish to let him have it. He told him about a project that he had where he could turn the money over and double it in a very short time. Well, he didn't double it. He lost it, and he couldn't pay him back. The fact of the matter is, they broke up a good friendship. It wrecked a relationship that they had. If you want to lose friends, start loaning the money, friend. And Jeremiah knew that. Jeremiah says, you'd think I'd been loaning money around here. Nobody wants to speak to me. Nobody's interested in me at all. Now, Jeremiah, at this time, turns to the Word of God that was written that been found, and he says, verse 16, "...the words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts." Now, this man took the word of God that had been found, and he found his consolation. He ate it. He digested it. It became part of him. Oh, how we need today to get into the word of God. 
And not just this little surface thing of learning a few little rules and having sort of a little school where we learn some steps that you take. My friend, we need to get in the Word of God. And if you get in the Word of God, God can take it. And as he did for Jeremiah, brought joy and rejoicing to the man's heart. And only the Word of God can do that. Now, this man finds that he's in real difficulty. His hometown, you remember, they got rid of him. They didn't like him. And his own family rejected him. His brethren would have nothing to do with him. And his life is really in danger. Verse 21, God says, And I will deliver thee out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem thee out of the hand of the terrible. God says, You just stay on the firing line. I'll take care of you. Now, the days are getting more difficult now. The nation is coming to the end of its rope. I take it that they're right now in ten years of the destruction of Jerusalem at this particular time. It couldn't have been much longer than that. Now, listen what he says to him. Chapter 16 now, verse 1, "...the word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. For thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters..." that are born in this place, and concerning their mothers that bear them, and concerning their fathers that begat them in this land, they shall die of grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented, neither shall they be buried, but they shall be as dung upon the face of the earth, and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their carcasses shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. And friends... I say to you that that's a very horrible sort of thing. Now, why did God say to this man, you're not to get married? Well, I think it's quite obvious why he's saying this to him. Because if you would go over to the 137th Psalm, you would find over there that they took the little ones and dashed their heads against a stone. That's what happened when Nebuchadnezzar took the city. Will you listen to Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9? O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. That's what had happened to their own. You see, the fact of the matter is that it's best under certain circumstances not to bring children into the world. And today, I'm not sure. My heart goes out to these little ones. I look at my grandson, and actually, tears come in my eyes. I think I'm going to make it through all right, but I don't know about him. And so I'm praying for him, you see. God says to Jeremiah, don't you get married. I don't want you to raise children in this place. And there is a time for that. A great deal could be said right there. Now, he has a bright note in here, and we need to note it. It's in chapter 16, verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth, that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, from all the lands whither he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their own land, 
that I gave unto their fathers. He looks down the future, and he sees the end of the tunnel. It never got so dark, but what? The prophets didn't see the light. And the darker it got, the brighter the light was. And God says, the day is coming when I'm going to bring them back into the land. And Jeremiah lets them know that. And what a wonderful thing that is. Now, verse 21 of chapter 16. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. And I'm of the opinion that God is going to have to teach this country that he's the Lord, that he's God. They don't believe he's out there today. And I'm afraid when he makes it known, it's going to be very impressive. Now, I want you to notice what is coming up in chapter 17. This is the message of this unmarried prophet. And he continues on. In verse 1, he says, In chapter 17, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with a point of a diamond. It's graven upon the table of their heart from the horns of their altars. It was even in their religion. They were evil in everything that they did. Verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. That might be well for some of us to put up as a motto today, those of us who think certain men are to be depended upon, uncertain parties can work out the problems of the world, and if this comes to pass or that comes to pass, that some man might do. My friend, you and I are cursed people if we're going to trust a man. This is a day to trust God. Now, he says that. Verse 7, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. God says that you'll be blessed if you'll trust him. He'll be like a tree planted by the waters, that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green. Oh, to trust them. Now he says here, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked, who can know it? That's your heart. That's my heart. We've all got heart trouble, unfortunately. And it's a bad case of heart trouble. I, the Lord, such the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God says, I intend to judge them. Now, only God can make a heart transplant. Apparently, man's not able to make that type of thing work yet. God's been able to make it work a long time. He gives you a new heart, he says, when you come to him. A new life, born again, given a new nature. That's what God says that he does. And this is something I've done, and I think many ministers and evangelists do it. We say to people, give your heart to the Lord. Well, now, let's look at that a moment. What do you think God wants with that old, dirty, filthy heart of yours? Don't bring it to him. He doesn't want it. He wants to give you a new one. That's the important thing. And that's the thing he says. Why, the heart's deceitful. He's a heart specialist. He's the great physician. Now we come to a great verse. Verse 12, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Now that's the hope of this man. He turns them away from man 
men with deceitful and dirty, filthy, wicked hearts. And he says, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Now, a sanctuary is not only a place to worship. It's a place of safety, a place of peace. And all nations had that. All religions have had it. A sanctuary was where people could go and be protected. And you remember that David laid hold of the horns of the altar. And God gave them cities of refuge. And that's where the priests were, out in the Hawaiian Islands on the big island. I've been to that city of refuge. Why, the Hawaiians, long before they heard the gospel, why, they had a sanctuary, a city of refuge. My friend, these are difficult days. May I say to you, dangerous days. Can't walk the streets. A bomb may come out of the air from a nation on the other side of the world. Well, where in the world can we go? There is a sanctuary, and that's the high throne of our God. That's the place that you and I can go. And he says that we are to come there. Let us come with boldness to his throne of grace. It's a sanctuary. It's a place of peace. It's a place of safety. May you find that peace and joy at that place, for it's the only place to go today. Now, friends, we come to the 18th chapter of Jeremiah. And many of you will recognize this as the trip that Jeremiah made down to the potter's house. Jeremiah began a method that Ezekiel developed and perfected, and that was to act out the parables that he told. And he did it, in fact, both men did it to get the attention of the people. It was difficult to get these people hardened in sin, sophisticated, who have now rejected God. It was difficult to get them to listen. And it's difficult today to get many people to listen. I heard the story about the fellow down in my state of Texas, and he had one of these little burras, little donkey. And a friend wanted to ride with him one day, and so... The friend got in the wagon and sat down, and this fellow, after he hitched the little donkey up, he went back to the wagon, took out a two-by-four, and he went around and hit the donkey on the head and came back, put the two-by-four in the wagon, and this friend sitting in the wagon was absolutely, he was surprised and shocked that this man would just deliberately and for no reason he'd hit this donkey on the head with a two-by-four. And he said to him, he said, that donkey didn't do anything. He says, why did you hit him like that? And he says, well, I did that to get his attention. May I say to you, the Lord sometimes has to use extreme methods to get our attention. Now, the Lord Jesus resorted to parables, you will recall. And he used that method that it might reach the heart of folk. And so here is a parable that is acted out. And this man went down to the potter's house. And I preached on this. In fact, I've preached on this chapter quite a few times. I love it. It has a great message, I think. And I thought the first time that I would preach on it that it would be nice to get a potter. 
And I mentioned it on radio. And a man who's a potter here in Southern California, he volunteered to come in, and he set up his wheel on the lower platform. And while he made a vase there, why, I preached. And you know, that is one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. Nobody listened to me. They watched the potter make that vase because it's very impressive to watch a thing like that. So I'm glad I'm not on TV today having somebody make a vase because I don't think you'd listen at all. So I think radio will maybe be better to tell about the potter. Now I'm reading chapter 18, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my word. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. Now, that is the visit that he made down there, and then he makes application of it to the nation. Now, I'm sure that most of you have seen a potter at work. If you haven't, you ought to. It would really give you a picture of the message that Jeremiah got there that day. I was traveling through Arkansas many years ago, driving, came to a place called Arkadelphia. And there was a pottery plant there, and there were several of us seminary students, so we decided to stop. And we stopped and watched the potters. There were several of them at work in there. And they didn't have the same thing they had in that day. In that day, they had sort of a treadmill outfit whereby you press down on a pedal and that turned the wheel around and then the potter could work. Here it was run by electricity, I guess, because the wheel was going around and all the potter had to do was to make the object. And of course, that was the main thing. That was what it's all about. And he had very deft hands. In fact, all of them did. And it was amazing how they could take a piece of clay and just in a few moments, it'd be a beautiful-looking vase, or maybe it was a vase. I don't know, but whatever it was, was very attractive. And there were two things that impressed me as I watched the potter at work, was the shapeless heap of ugly mud. And that was about as unattractive as anything I've ever seen. That was certainly something that you couldn't help but notice. And then they had a display room. And the second thing that impressed me was those exquisite vases or vases that they had on display. They were objects of art. And many potters were in there bending over their wheels, intent on the work at hand. And the difference was the potter between that clay and that beautiful vase. Now, the picture here, I think, is quite easy. God made the application. God is the potter. Israel is clay in particular here. But all mankind in general, you and I, are clay in the potter's hands. 
Each individual, let's make it personal. You and I, we are the clay. God is the potter. Now, the figure of the potter and the clay is very impressive and very important. And Paul used it in the New Testament. You go over to the ninth chapter of Romans at verse 21. Let me read that, beginning there. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? This is a tremendous statement, by the way, and it's pretty hard for a lot of folks to swallow. Now, God is the potter. I think that's quite obvious, and Paul speaks of that. And Paul also speaks of the clay. Over in 2 Timothy 2.21, I read this language. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified in meat for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. A vessel now, pottery vessel. Notice what this potter did. This potter was making a vessel, and it got marred in his hand. It wouldn't yield. The clay has to be just a right texture. And this clay wouldn't yield to him. Maybe it wasn't soft enough. And so it was marred, and he pitched it aside. And what did he do? He picked it up then later, and he made it another kind of a vessel. He did that. Now, what we have here are two things that I want you to notice. One is the power of the potter and the personality of the clay. Now, that's an interesting thing. And then we're going to see the very opposite of that, the personality of the potter and the power of the clay. Now, those sound like paradoxes, but let's look at them first. The power of the potter. Now, like a giant potter, God took clay and formed man, the physical part of man. We're told over in Genesis 2, verse 7, "...and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul." God was the potter. <laughs> now, there's something quite interesting about this potter. No one can stop this potter. No one can question his right. No one can resist his will. No one can say him nay. No one can alter his plan. No one can speak back to him like the little gingerbread boy did. The story's told about the little boy playing down at the creek, and he took mud, and he was making a mud man. And he got it all made except one arm. And he didn't put that on because his father called him to go with him into town. And so when he was in town, the little boy walking around, he saw a man with one arm. And he kept looking at that man. And finally, the little fella walked up to him and said to him, says, why did you run off before I finished you? May I say that God finishes all of us. Nowhere will you find such a graphic picture of the sovereignty of God. We hear today a great deal about the rights of man, but they've forgotten all about the rights of God. And why the worst racketeering gangster can claim the Fifth Amendment. 
And you just can't make him answer questions. Why? Because you've got freedom. You have freedom. And the Puritans taught that, too, that we're to have freedom. But may I say that they also taught that God was sovereign. And God has certain rights also. And God has incontestable authority. He has irresistible ability. He has an inexorable and inflexible will to form and to fashion individuals and nations and a world and the universe. God has power to carry through his will today. He's answerable to no one. God's not working for a boss. He doesn't watch the clock. He's not responsible to a board of deacons. He does not have to answer to a board of directors. He's sovereign. He's an absolute dictator and a sovereign. And you and I live in a universe which is running to please him. Maybe you don't like it. A man said to me, and he was a neighbor of mine, we live here at the foothills of the Sierra Madre Mountains. He said, you know that these mountains to me sometimes are a little depressive. They give me a phobia that I'm being shut in and closed in. He says, you know, I would just like to move them back a little. And I said to him, why don't you do it? And he looked at me in amazement. Well, he says, I can't do it. And I said, do you know why they are where they are? Well, he says, I guess it was because of some great convulsion in nature that took place in the past. I said, yes, I think that's the way it happened. But you know why they're right where they are? No, he says, I really don't. Well, I said, I can tell you. They are there because that's where God wants them to be. May I say to you, today you and I are living in a universe that is running for him. It's for his glory. And the rebellion of man today is like a tempest in a teapot. You can't surprise him. You can't deceive him. You can't disturb him. God rides triumphantly today in his own chariot. And who's going to say him nay? Who's going to tell him whether he's wrong or not? May I say to you, God is sovereign, the power of the potter. Now, notice the personality of the clay. Now, somebody says that's a mixed metaphor. Clay's formless. It's shapeless. It's lifeless. It's a muddy mess. It's inept. It's inert. It's incapable. It's gooey, not good. And after all, the Scripture says, the psalmist said, he remembers that we are dust. And sometimes we forget about it. And when we do, why, when dust gets stuck on itself, it's mud. <laughs> May I say to you, there's no inherent ability, helpless and hopeless. We are told that Paul made it very clear when he was talking to the Ephesians. You remember how he put that? How he starts off with man as a sinner? And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And we're told in the Scripture, for when we were yet without strength, Christ died for us. Oh, my friend, today, you and I need to recognize that our God is a sovereign God and that we today are, are clay. But 
The very interesting thing is that he has something to say about that clay. So then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. God is the one that is in charge. None of us have any claim on God. God made that clear. He said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. He says, Moses, I'm going to hear you, but I'm not going to hear you because you're Moses. I'm going to hear you because I extend mercy. That's the reason God heard them. God is not obligated to save any man at all. God is free to act. He's righteous and he's holy. And this is a lost world, and it could remain that. Now, we have the second thing here. We have the personality of the potter and the power of the clay. And will you listen to that here in this passage of Scripture that we have before us here in Jeremiah, verse 4? And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make it. Now, if God were a cruel and arbitrary dictator, this would be the most terrifying truth I can think of. Actually, if God were absolutely brutal, and if he was heartless, then it would be repulsive to us. It would be repulsive if God were vindictive if he was motivated by a whim, if he was petty and prejudiced and petulant and perfidious, if he was any of these. It says here, he made again another vessel. Why? Because of his patience. You have no right to question God. Actually, it's blasphemy. Dr. Shedd put it like this, an irreverent equalizing of man with God. The minute you begin to question him... You put yourself in his place. You say you're a God. And there are a lot of people today say they're going to be saved by their own method. One man said, I'm going to work this thing out myself. I'm a good man. I'm going to do good. I said, what you're trying to do is you're working your way up yonder to the throne of God. And when you get there, you're going to tell him, move over. There are two of us now. May I say to you, you're not God. You're going to come his way, but he's gracious, he's kind, and God acts with all wisdom and all love and all justice. He could fling the clay from him forever. And if I were God, that's a game you can play sometime. Years ago, they got out a play called Green Pastures, and the one who played God in that, and it probably was blasphemous, I never saw it, but I'm told that the one who played God looked down at the earth and said, Look like my children done forgot all about me. Well, Adam sinned, and Jacob failed, and God didn't throw him overboard. God wasn't through with him. He took the play and worked it over. And in the book of Jonah, the most heartening word is, The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Jonah failed the first time. And Peter could say to the Lord when he came to him there fishing at the Sea of Galilee, when he'd gone back to fishing, he says, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. What he said was, Well, why don't you go get somebody else? I failed you so much. And the Lord says, You're clay on the potter's wheel. 
and I love you, and I'm going to make a vessel out of you. And my didn't he on the day of Pentecost, he preached the greatest sermon the church has ever had. May I say to you, what we have is the personality of the potter. Now let's talk about the power of the clay. Now somebody says, well, you mean to tell me the clay has power? Sure does. The condition of the clay is determining factor in its ultimate destiny. When it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, actually, God didn't harden his heart. God brought out that his heart was hard. God made him reveal what he was. There are a lot of people today flying back of false colors. They're hypocritical. And that's one of the reasons I think God permits suffering to come to a great many folk. The sun shines on the clay, and it'll harden it. It'll shine on a cold piece of ice and melt it. And it brings that out. May I say to you, God never hardened Pharaoh's heart again and again. He gave that man an opportunity to turn to him. You know, even the magicians came to Pharaoh and said to him, This is the finger of God. And his servants came to him and said, Let these people go. And even he relented after each plague. But one time he cried out, I've sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. But he didn't turn to God. (laughs) And what happens? O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. What a picture that we have. Now he shall send them strong delusion in the last days. Who's he sending that to? Those that would not receive the love of the truth. You see, the clay has power. The clay can determine what it's going to be. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, Will you also go away? They could have. The rich young ruler, he went away sorrowful. And our Lord didn't say we're going to sing 14 more stanzas to see if he won't come forward. He just let him go. (laughs) The clay has power, friends. You can turn your back on him. You can shake your fists at him. You can do that. You can cast yourself upon his mercy and yield to his sweet influence. This is a lesson that Jeremiah got, and he took it to his people, and they resisted it, and they turned their back on God. Then said they, Come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah. Verse 18, For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us smite him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his word. They rejected Jeremiah. Why, they said, this man is not saying that which is true at all. The clay has power, and so does the potter, by the way. And in the 19th chapter, why, the Lord told him, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen bottle, and take of the ancients of the people and the ancients of the priests, and go forth into the valley of the son of Hinnom. And that valley became the place where they cast garbage. But one of the great battles was fought in the valley of Hinnom. He says, now you go there and you break that bottle. And then you come back. What's the message? God says, that's what I'm going to do to the house of Israel. That's what's going to happen to them. 
And because he gave this message, this is what happened to the man. Then came Jeremiah from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy. He stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, verse 14, that is, verse 15 now, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I pronounced against it, because they've hardened their necks, that they might not hear my words. And so we find because of that message, we'll see that they begin now to persecute Jeremiah. These are the last days of that nation. And this man with a broken heart and eyes filled with tears gave the message to the people. What a prophet, but not popular, never popular, not popular today either.